Call Me Al podcast. I'm Al Condalusi. Um, the Call Me Al podcast is conversations that that we have with some really interesting and talented and experienced folks really all over the world. The Call Me Out podcast is, uh, is uh, initiated by the Interdependence Network, which is a uh, community of practice uh, on macro change issues, uh, international community of practice. Uh, you can find out more about the Interdependence Network at uh, www.buildingsocialcapital.org. Um, the podcast is also produced by Side Project Incorporated, and Side Project is a um, nonprofit entity that provides legal assistance and legal advice uh, to nonprofit organizations. Uh, and uh, you can find them at sideprojectinc.org. Uh, um, and lastly, the Call Me Out podcast is uh, sponsored by Connect Community, which is a tremendous. A brain injury community-based program in uh, Vancouver area, um, as well as in the Ontario area. And we appreciate Connect Communities' uh, uh, support of the Call Me Out podcast. And and today we have a a, a tremendous uh, show lined up. I'm I'm, I'm uh, speaking with and having a conversation today with Alan Bergman. And Alan, uh, anyone in the disability arena for the last. Uh, 40 years, will know the name Alan Bergman because he's done some amazing things uh, in his career and some really powerful um, policy-oriented uh, things. Alan uh, kind of got his start um, in Texas uh, when he was uh, working on his degree at the University of Texas and started in, a, in an institution, in the Austin State Institution. And and, and really, that really launched his values and his passion uh, for full and inclusive community, the things that he saw at, at that institution, like many of us who worked in institutions um, saw, uh, really, really got him going. But then Alan continued on, got his, um, uh, got his uh, uh, master's degree at Cornell University, um, he uh, or his undergraduate degree at Cornell, his master's at the University of Texas in Austin, and, um, was with the Arc of Dallas and then the Arc of San Francisco and then the Arc of Colorado. Those are all advocacy oriented um, organizations uh, looking to uh, support folks with developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities. And, and then I met Alan, I had the privilege of meeting Alan and working closely with him starting in 1986. When Alan moved on to Washington, D.C. Uh, to take on the uh, public policy role for United Cerebral Palsy, UCP, um, I was working at UCP at Pittsburgh and very interested in, in federal policy at the time and, and had the opportunity to meet Alan. Um, uh, since then, we've been uh, dear friends and colleagues and advocates. Um, Alan went on uh, beyond his work at uh, UCP, he went on to the uh, Brain Injury Association uh, of America as their executive director, and then back to Chicago, uh, where he uh, was executive director of the Annexter uh, Center, um, and then in 2010, um, moved on to become a full-time consultant, and that's the role that Alan plays uh, now. So, Alan Bergman, my dear friend, welcome to the Call Me Out podcast. Thank you, Al. Pleasure to be here and have the opportunity to chat with you a bit 
about where we've been, where we are, and where we still need to go in terms of truly creating an interdependent culture where people with disabilities are valued contributing members of society. Excellent. You know, Alan has had the experience base both uh, in terms of running organizations um, and then policy matters at a state in Colorado. He was the the, the CEO of the, uh, the ARC there. Um, and then, of course, on the UCP where he handled federal policy matters. But the other powerful thing about, about Alan Bergman um, is also as a family member. He's the proud dad of uh, Dina, um, a woman with an intellectual disability that uh, uh, is now, you know, living a full and inclusive uh, life in community. And, and so Alan's uh, in impact has been both uh, at the organizational level, at the public policy level, and certainly at the family level um, uh, with that. And so, Alan, having a person with your breadth of experience um, to, to talk about and to focus in on macro issues, community issues today is, is really uh, a privilege for us. So uh, we not only thank you for, um, uh, for, for being here, but um, wanted to just kind of get started with, um, you know, I know that you're, a, you know, you're a, you know, incredibly literate, you're well-read, um, you're, you keep up to date on, on things. And you were telling me uh, uh, earlier before we started the podcast about a quote from Senator Bob Dole, who was a real advocate for disability issues in his tenure. I uh, was a former presidential uh, candidate as well. Uh, but give us that quote to kind of set the context for our discussion today. Great. I would like to do that, but I, I don't want to leave out my stepdaughter, Mindy, so that mm. I have I have personal life on two sides. And uh, I may reference Mindy later. Mindy is a young lady uh, who's also having a very good life, experiences very complex disability from something called Rett syndrome. But as I've told you and many others, I practice what I preach. And Mindy wasn't supposed to be capable of work. And she's now through customized employment working and a very valued employee where she works. So yeah, yeah. I not only talk about it, I live it and it's real and it's great. But thank you for the Senator Dole quote. Bob Dole was the first U.S. senator with a visible significant disability. Uh, and when he was first uh, moved in there, April 14th, 1969. So we're talking before Section 504, the Rehab Act, before special education. So nothing had really been done in the legislative arena. Here's what the man said, and it's powerful then, and it's powerful today in terms of what still remains to be done. Mr. President, my remarks today concern an exceptional group, which I joined on April 14th, 24 years ago, during World War II. It is a minority group whose existence affects every person in our society and the very fiber of our nation. Here's the part you're going to love, Al. It is a group who no one joins by personal choice, a group whose requirements for membership are not based on age, sex, wealth, education, skin color, religious belief, political party, power, or prestige. 
As a minority, it has always known exclusions. Maybe not exclusion from the front of the bus, but perhaps from even climbing aboard it. Maybe not exclusion for pursuing advanced education, but perhaps from experience any formal education. Maybe not exclusion from day-to-day -day life itself, but perhaps from an adequate opportunity to develop and contribute to his or her fullest capacity. Mr. President, I speak today about 42 million of our citizens of our nation who are physically, mentally, or emotionally, and he used the word then, handicapped. Mm -hmm. April 14th, 1969, wow. then became a lead co-sponsor of the American Disabilities Act and many other things in 1990. So I think for me, that sets the foundation of the first time, to my knowledge, there was a speech of any kind on the floor in the United States Congress putting that word disability out there up front. Wow. And, you know, within both of our, our experience bases, too, Alan, because in 1969, when Senator Dole was making those powerful, powerful acknowledgments, I stepped foot into Kane Hospital, which... And I went in as a, you know, a direct support uh, uh, professional, uh, providing mm -hmm. services to people with disabilities. And it was a large Gothic institution with 2,200 uh, residents. Um, and, and, you know, I know you've had, in your early career, similar kinds of experiences in terms of how people were treated then and even now, today. Um, all those many years later from when Senator Dole made those comments, uh, when you stepped into the Austin State uh, uh, Institution in Texas, I stepped into Kane Hospital, um, all the way to today. Uh, and I know you had some powerful, powerful experiences uh, that you saw in those early, uh, early years. I don't know if you could reiterate a little bit about that. I'd be happy to because it's like yesterday, Al. It's just up there in the cortex, never goes away. Um, I walked into the Austin State School in Austin, Texas, not knowing where I was going and mm -hmm. went out to this building. Was The door was locked. They opened it up. I went in and I just stood there for a minute. And the picture is right here today. There were 28 men because everything was no co-ed then. Okay sitting or lying on the floor and the floor was a big day room concrete with a couple of drains in it and at each end of the room was a tv set hanging on the wall in a cage black and white tv and down at the end of the room was a walled in office i guess there were three staff in there they were smoking cigarettes drinking coffee and playing cards and i'm standing there in shock I would think they're being paid to do something. I don't know what. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was trained as a clinical psychologist. Okay. Um, and then I'm standing there looking around a little more. And about 10 minutes later, one of them comes out. And again, unbelievable to me, because some of the people lying on the floor were naked. Some had some clothes on. He comes out turns a hose on and hoses them down because some of them had defecated or urinated on themselves or on the floor. That's why it was a concrete floor with a couple of drains. Threw some towels at them and went back in to play some more cards. That was my introduction to the world of people with significant or perceived significant disabilities uh, in 1967. Wow. Talking about etching those, uh, those memories 
um, and and literally um, the shock uh, that I know I felt, um, uh, you know, and, and, and actually the, the facility that I worked in was a hospital, or at least uh, it was called a hospital, right. and obviously it had certain certifications uh, to be called that, but uh, again, uh, I didn't see anything as stark as the drains on the floor and the hosing. However, uh, a couple years after that, when I when I got to UCP um, and went to a facility called Polk State School and Hospital in order to meet some residents who lived there, who were originally from my county, from the county just around Spitzburg, um, I saw cages and rooms much like you just described. So um, shocking, shocking kinds of things when you when you awaken to it. Um, and, and it's indelible. It, it, it stays, I know it stays with you. Um, certainly those kinds of horrors stay with me and we're the driving force. Uh, tell us a little bit about then, what, from that experience, Alan, when you, you know, really were shocked, how did that drive then your um, professional commitment? Like, what did you feel you had to do or could do in order to address that? Well, I think what I picked up on it was probably some of my early growing up culture as well, that social justice became the banner in my life. Uh, And in this case, social justice for people with the label disability, at that point, handicap, handicapping condition, uh, because what I saw was so insensitive, inhumane, and frankly, disgusting. It was repulsive that a, a human being was treated worse, as we saw in the Willowbrook case in New York, than the animals in the Bronx Zoo. I mean, that was another major breakthrough in publicity when the Willowbrook case on Staten Island in New York, Geraldo Rivera, the expose, my good colleague, Dr. Bill Bronston, who's now out in California, went to the media And then Senator Robert Kennedy said, this is a snake pit. And that created the protection and advocacy system in law and the Developmental Disabilities Act. But that got some real national visibility of how horrible the conditions were. And in the depositions, the per diem at the Bronx Zoo was higher than the per diem for the people, the human beings living in Willowbrook State School on Staten Island. That's disgraceful. That that tells you volumes because, again, another lesson I have learned over the years that we'll talk about probably is you can have all the nice words on a piece of paper in an agency, whether it's class or the ARC or whoever it might be, your budget tells you where your money is and that tells you what you really do. So you can say you believe in X, Y, Z. And I learned this from the late Dr. Mark Gold when he did a visit to me at the ARC in San Francisco on employment services. And then we sat down and again, these are one-time learning for me and we have been doing some stuff. And he said, let me see your budget. And I thought, wait a minute, here's a guy who's a trainer. What does he want to look at my budget for? <laughs> yeah. Will you tell me you're interested in employment? So we took it out. So I said, how many FTEs, full-time equivalents, do you have? So I went through and we had about three-fourths. At that point, that was about a $5 million budget. And he basically said to me, you're full of it. Mm. It was a teachable moment. Yeah. You can talk the talk all day long. Do you walk the talk? Walking the talk means an operational translation in your budget. 
And guess what? We began to change our budget based on that. And that's a lesson I have used every place I go, whether it's a community agency, a county government, a state government, any place I go, let me see how you're allocating out the resources. Guess what? Lots of times they do not align. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is really such, such a powerful lesson because it really is where the rubber kind of hits the road. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to just toss another piece in here apropos of the, of the institution experience that, that we both had. Um, when you got to Washington, D.C., which was in 1985-86 when you arrived in D.C., that was really right at the very beginning of a lot of the energy uh, for the ADA. Now, I know, I know the advocacy for the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is basically the civil rights legislation for, for people with disabilities. Um, and, and, and that had a lot of energy going in through the 60s and the 70s for sure. Right. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, the mid 80s when it really started to get some traction and look like it was going to really become a law rather than just an ideal, rather than just a, a dream that advocates had. And you were right there at the heart of that experience. I, I, I just wanted to ask you some thoughts about how that then began to come together as a solidified moment for the disability macro agenda, macro change agenda, uh, which was to change the culture, to literally change the laws of the land. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, again, the beginning goes way back to probably after 1973, when we got this thing called Section 504 in the Rehab Act, non-discrimination against people with disabilities, anybody who gets public funding, uh, then there were sit-ins and demonstrations because the then Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Mr. Califano, was unwilling to sign the regulations. I was in San Francisco at the time. Again, wonderful coincidences in my life. The Center for Independent Living in Berkeley with Judy Human and Ed Roberts had just gotten started. They were colleagues early in my life. And again, very important to know, although the independent living centers get a lot of the recognition and they should for the sit-ins, we had people from the Ark of San Francisco, myself included, sitting in in the federal building, pushing them to sign those regs. So that was the beginning. And then in 1982, an organization called the National Council on Disability, which had been created in the late 70s, commissioned a report called Toward Independence. That was the foundation for the ADA. Um, and basically, it said everything that we still know, unfortunately, today. People with disabilities are discriminated against. They're segregated. There's prejudice. They're excluded. All of those things. And they decided right then their agenda was to get a comprehensive civil rights law, looking back to the 60 civil rights stuff and trying to build off it. It took eight years to get the ADA passed. And if it were not for the late Justin Dart, whom you knew, I certainly got to know, who we call the Gandhi of the disability community, we would have had a very fractured ADA because what Congress tried to do, and they do this all the time, is a game called divide and conquer. So mm -hmm. Al... 
you're, you're really concerned about people with physical disabilities or cerebral palsy, or you're concerned about people with traumatic brain injury or whatever. But, you know, those people with really severe psychiatric issues or profound in those days, mental retardation, they don't need to be protected. Can, can we get your organization to sign on with those exceptions? And that kind of dealing was going on. And Justin, when we had the meetings at the Methodist Church every week said, Either we're all in or we're all out. We are not selling out any of our brothers and sisters. Guess what? There are no exceptions and no exclusion by diagnosis or category in the Americans with Disability Act. It applies to somebody with a mild disability, whatever that means, as much as to somebody with multiple complex disabilities. Eight years in the works, not negotiable. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's just going back into that, I, I, I was taken back um, recently by uh, the the documentary Crip Camp um, with, uh, you know, Judy Human's uh, work back in the, you know, I mean, in camp in 73, 74, when that was uh, done at Camp Janed up in uh, New York. And then beaming forward, beaming uh, the story forward to the the San Francisco sit-ins at the uh, federal office building. Uh, you know, I, I did not know that you were in San Francisco at that time. Yep. Uh, and uh, although I shouldn't be surprised at that by virtue of your, your potency as, as an advocate, but man, oh man, what, what phenomenal times. And, you know, you talk about Justin Dart and Evan Kemp and other people who were, you know, brokers, uh, and I had a chance to interview both uh, Justin as well as Evan um, about that that period of time you're talking about the toward independence report and then and then that those negotiations that were happening uh, prior to the ADA signage in 1990 by uh, President George Herbert Walker uh, Bush. But you were right in the middle of all that as well as a as a policy specialist, disability policy specialist. Um, in D.C. right at that time. So that's really phenomenal. You should write your memoirs, man. You should you should capture uh, these stories because, you know, I, I just started reading Judy's book, which yeah. is obviously a chronicle being human by Judy human um, is uh, a tremendous if you're a disability advocate, especially on macro change, which is, you know, the course of this conversation and what what the call me out podcast is all about. Um, you know, is, uh, you know, that that's the stuff that really pushes the needle of how the culture reacts. But but, you know, Alan, you and I both know in our long, long histories of, of, of experience that formal change when you petition and then when you get a law signed doesn't necessarily lead to change. Right. We I mean, wish it was that simple. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, it, it's important to have that formal stuff. There's no question that that has to be the backdrop, but it really takes a little bit, you know, more than that. And I wanted to wonder, given your, again, your personal experiences in family, your personal experiences, you know, running agencies, working at agencies in, in employment related agendas, and then of course, policy matters. What what's your thoughts about about, you know, what is the formula here that begins to change culture? Yeah, 
Well, your point is right on. We have to have the laws because they set the foundation. And whether it's federal law, state law, whether it's rules, regulations, court decisions are all essential for us to foundationally be able to support what we need to get done. Otherwise, we're just pure ideologues or we're in fantasy land. And you've been told that. I've been told that many. I'm still being told that you don't really believe somebody like this can work and live in their own home. Yeah, I do, because I know it. Uh, But if you haven't seen it, uh, like the late Mike Mayer, I think you know Mike. People know what they know. They don't know what they don't know. And they don't know it. And what we're dealing with is, again, a wonderful cliche, ignorance is the enemy. Knowledge is power. We use that a lot. But unfortunately, the other side of that is ignorance is the enemy. There is pervasive ignorance across every country, every state in the United States. Are there pockets of excellence? Yes. Are there some communities that are further ahead than others? Are there some systems that are better than others? Absolutely. But nobody, in my opinion, has yet done full implementation of all the rights that are articulated in law and court decision. But again, let's go back when the ADA was signed and President George H.W. Bush said among many things, and again, honored and privileged with my wife, Jan, whom you know, and my daughter, Dina, to be among the 3,000 people sitting on the White House lawn for the signing and the celebration. Here's what he said. Every man, woman, and child with a disability can now pass through the once closed doors into a bright new era of equality, independence, and freedom. We will not tolerate discrimination in America. Wonderful words, sincere. He had been well-educated by, as you said, Evan Kemp, Lex Friedman, many people, um, and he knew what he was talking about. That was not funny stuff we're still struggling. That is not the real world for most of the people living with a disability that you know, that I know, to the people on this podcast know. So then let's go to the cultural side of this. Words often can become hollow promises. Mm. We have to learn how to practice what we preach. And culture change, and you know this probably better than I do, but I've certainly lived it, is not because people are evil, not because they want to hurt somebody with a disability or hurt somebody of color or hurt somebody who speaks a foreign language. These are learned behaviors. As John Locke taught us, we are all born tabula rasa. The brain doesn't wake up on day one and say, oh, I don't like somebody who uses a wheelchair or I don't like somebody who speaks Spanish or somebody who's got dark skin or has a beard or whatever it might, or is gay. Okay. Those are learned behaviors and that's culture and you don't just come in on July 20th 1990 and say okay now we have full civil rights for people with disabilities all that stuff that you've learned and that you've practiced about the thems throw it in the trash can because tomorrow morning it's a new day like that for any of us but I think the frustration I share today and I really appreciate this opportunity is okay it's been we're going to have the 30th anniversary of ADA coming up in a couple of months that's a chunk of time where are we on the yardstick where are we on any kind of measure Mm -hmm. and I want to share a few with you and then we can discuss them 
Mm -hmm. uh, I do a lot of this work, as you know, and I try to take the policy and the data and the fiscal and put it all together. And I have to tell you, the picture that I have for right now is not very pretty for the mm -hmm. United States of America. I can't speak to other countries. I don't suspect it's a heck of a lot better, but maybe it is. So I looked at the special education data because we've had least restrictive environment in special ed law, starting in your home state, mm -hmm. thanks to Pennsylvania Association then for Retarded Children, 1969, and the Tom Gilhul bringing that case again, let's get it to the law, under equal protection, due process, and deprivation of liberty. Those are significant pieces in the United States culture, and he got the court to agree, and kids could start to go to school, and then we got the federal law. Mm -hmm. As of 2018, the last national data set we have, mm -hmm. looking at kids with intellectual disability, and I'll give you some of the others, only 17%, Al, of kids with intellectual disability, kindergarten through 12th grade, are included 80% or more of the time with their age peers in school. Conversely, 50% are only included 40% or less, and about 50% of them are still totally self-contained, isolated classrooms or schools in 2018. So let's look at the reality of that, and then we'll come to some of the others. So I'm a garden variety neurotypical kid in that city, where that is, and I grow up. And I grew up not seeing many of these kids, or if so, they're down the hall someplace, or maybe I see them at the lunchroom, or maybe out in the playground or whatever, but they're not my peers, they're not my friends, and I grow up understanding and appreciating in that culture a we-they. They're different from me, they're less than, because if they were like me, they'd be in my classroom, right? They'd go to the movies with me or whatever and whatever. And yet when we see real inclusion at work with the appropriate supports, those relationships do happen. Not that everybody likes every kid with a disability any more than they like every kid without a disability. There are different personalities, but somehow, again, we have this thing in our head that everybody has to be embraced. No, there are people you like and I don't like and you like and whatever. But the kids thing to me is amazing because here we are where kids are still growing up segregated and isolated, and that's a dilemma. And then we go look forward to where we are on the adult side. And we talk about unemployment rates, but I wanna get this one in because it's frightening to me. Unemployment isn't the number to watch. The number to watch is what's called workforce participation. Hmm. In the most recent numbers before the pandemic, hang on to this one, hmm. 75% of adults with cognitive, intellectual, or psychiatric disabilities are not participating in the workforce. That means they're not working or are they looking for work? Unemployment is only people who are seeking employment. So we deceive ourselves, oh, the disability unemployment rate was down to 4.5% or whatever it was back in November, December. That's delusional. 75% of them aren't looking. Guess where they live? In poverty, the largest group of people living in poverty in the United States of America is somebody with a disability. 25% of people with 25% uh, of people with disabilities are in the poverty class, the largest group in the United States, and we've had that distinction for 17 straight years. Okay, so the real work has got to happen 
down home, if you will, in the neighborhood, in the community, that's where social capital begins. It doesn't begin with the ADA. It doesn't begin with most integrated setting. It doesn't begin with Olmstead. Those are great and we need them yeah. as tools. But if we can't translate it operationally into Dina's life, Mindy's life, Jane's life, Tommy's life, whoever it might be, then they're nothing more than hollow promises, which is why we've got to look at budgets, we've got to look at training, we've got to look at capacity building, technical assistance, all of which take time and money. We just don't go from a segregated school to full inclusion next September 1st. It's not going to happen. You've got to invest in training staff. They've got to see it to believe it because they're products of their environment, no different than any of the rest of us. And one of the things we all have to tolerate as change agents is not to get mad at people and for their values. Their values are learned no different from yours and mine, and ours have evolved. And the other key message here is, we have to learn to let go even of what we think is best practice because guess what? Next week there's going to be a new best practice and get stuck. And the line I like to use is today's model of excellence is tomorrow's model T. I don't know what customized employment 2.0 is going to look like, but it's going to be different. I don't know what the new assistive technology is going to look like, but it's going to be different. I'll use everything I've got, but hopefully next week I'm going to have a new tool in the toolbox and there may be some there that I'm going to throw away. Right, right. Alan, that, you know, you just articulated very, very powerfully and very tangibly um, this disparity. And as much as we sort of flagellate ourselves and, and sort of pat ourselves on the back um, for some of the high points, um, when, when you really, uh, dis, you know, distill it down like you did with that data, um, it's seemingly we haven't moved very far at all. And, and you know, the, 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 the tragedy here uh, is that when you think about this becoming really a cultural uh, sensitivity, that we want, we want, you know, the culture to be able to be respectful and viable, and then we look at what's happening on a national level and and you know some of the rhetoric and some of the mean spiritedness and the and the fighting and the bickering that we see in in politics in general, it it makes it, it really just makes you saddened that 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 getting change uh, is going to be really a a, a true um, you know challenge for 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 all of us. Um, any thoughts and, on and Al, I, I want to pick up on that for a minute in terms of the current yeah. environment of the pandemic. Leave yeah. the politics aside. We are seeing a resurgence of ableism yes. in the medical community, which has never been our friend. We've tried to right. reject the medical model. I hope you're aware there were three lawsuits brought against states who had policies saying that people with certain types of disabilities, if they needed a ventilator, wouldn't get them because their quality of life wasn't going to be adequate. Mm -hmm. We had to get the Office of Civil Rights involved, Health and Human Services. There are still battles going on about quality of life and a third party, whether it's a doctor or a nurse, looking at you, looking at the person in the next room and deciding which one of you is worthy. And if you have Down syndrome, or cerebral palsy and a visible, a visible disability. Well, heck, 
you're 40 years old, but here's this healthy, vibrant person at 40 years old. They're going to get it first. And sorry, you won't. And in some cases, they said you won't get it at all. Not only you won't get it on a priority. All right. So we're in a sense seeing some regression here to the kind of stuff that Bob Dole was talking about when he first entered the Senate of blatant discrimination based on a label, based on a perceived value or lack of value. And that, to me, is going to make our work even more necessary going forward at the local level. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, it, it's absolutely a powerful uh, this pandemic that we're uh, experiencing as we as we record uh, this particular podcast, uh, you know, with physical distancing and, and hopefully there's a difference between physical distancing and social distancing where we can stay socially connected, although we have physically be apart. Um, but the rise in isolation and loneliness and, you know, even take disability off the off the uh, off the table just for a minute and think about it just generically. Um, these are really really challenging and and, and troubling times. Um, what we're going to do here, Alan, uh, you know, we try to keep the Call Me Out podcasts, uh, you know, within you know half hour range. Uh, so what I want to do though is I would love to schedule a part two conversation. Uh, with Alan Bergman, because some of the questions that I still have remaining, and I know some of the issues that you are are passionate about, we haven't even scratched yet as we think about change. Uh, You know, we've articulated what the problem is or what the challenge is, um, but in terms of some of success stories around solutions, I know uh, experiences you have really speak to that. uh, and, And I'd like to See if we can schedule an Alan Bergman, you know, part two, you know, the uh, the sequel, if you will, um, where we can have a chance to really talk about the kinds of things uh, that have been done that we've seen to give the audience some kind of a sense of what might be, what could be. So let's schedule that. Let me give you a final summary sort of statement, and then we can wrap this up. And I, I promise the listeners um, of the Call Me Out podcast that we're going to have Alan Bergman back for, for a round two. But how about a, a summary statement and we'll see if we can wrap this up. Well, one, I'd really be honored to come back and have part two. So we'll work that out. Uh, I think this, the, trans, the, the next piece here really is how do we achieve cultural transformation. That's really what we're talking about. Um, And people throw that word around all the time. I don't think they know what it really means and operationally how to do it. I've done some, I've helped people do some, but I think how do you get from point A to point B on the road to full inclusion, full interdependence, full participation and full value? And it's hard work and we have to accept that And then we have to make the commitment to get it done. And as you know, one person at a time. And basically what we talk about is how then do you manage the successes and get the word out and begin to jam the cultural stereotypes? That's always been my best experience is get people to rethink. Great. Alan, you know, you just just a, a, a last point. You raised it. I know in the consulting work that you've been doing, uh, working with the Jan and other other folks that you've um, 
been able to uh, you know and have assembled into some of your work. How might someone get in touch with you if they wanted to talk either more with you or maybe even engage you um, in in this uh, agenda? How, what's the easiest uh, email address? Easiest email address is very simple. A I B E R G M A N at Comcast, C-O-M-C-A-S-T dot net. Excellent. Excellent. And we're going to have that on the show notes. So uh, no matter where you get your, you know, get tuned into this podcast and when you bring it up, there's some show notes and a bio on on all the guests that we we have on the Call Me Out podcast. And and uh, we'll make sure that you have Alan's email to be able to. But you can Google Alan Bergman. And I'm telling you, it's page after page after page of just incredible things that that Alan has done um, in his career. Uh, Alan, I want to thank you for the time and energy that we put you put into um, this work uh, and into you know this conversation today. Uh, we've captured a lot in a very short period of time, but I definitely do want to schedule a round two that will really look at solutions and maybe ideas and and possibilities um, that we'll we'll go down the pike on, and we'll we'll get that scheduled soon. So, Alan. On behalf of the Interdependence Network, um, the Call Me Out podcast, which is uh, uh, produced uh, by um, Side Project Incorporated uh, and sponsored by the uh, Connect community um, in Canada, in uh, the Vancouver area, as well as in the uh, uh, Hamilton, Ontario area. I want to thank you for taking time today to be a a part of this uh, this podcast. My pleasure. Look forward to the next part. Have a good day. Thanks, Alan. You've been listening to the Call Me Out podcast. 